You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is Friday, April 28th, 2023. We're here today to discuss this new book that has just come out on the legacy of Richard Wagner. Professor Wagner was a longtime professor here at George Mason University, a department chairman, as well as a director of graduate studies during his time, and just a role model for many of us as a creative and productive scholar. In fact, just to point out, since he retired last spring, he's published two new books, Rethinking Public Choice and Rethinking Social Theory. So that's uh, our kind of retirement. That means you just keep being creative and productive and go along. But I think also one of the important things is that Professor Wagner was a a great teacher and mentor to uh, generations of students. And uh, just to give an example of this, just this last period of, of public choice, there's an article in there by two of his former students, Louis uh, Rouenet and Peter Hazlett, which pick up on Dick's early writings on political business cycle and try to you know, examine it for empirical data for the, the Great Recession and afterwards today. And so Dick gave away ideas freely to his students and engaged in that true dialogue uh, with them. And that is just a, a, an amazing gift that he provided to generations of students. So obviously with Professor Wagner's retirement, it leaves a big gap in our program here, but we're also so thrilled to honor his legacy with this book and also to continue to engage with Professor Wagner in the many opportunities that we possibly can. So today, in order to, to discuss their uh, contributions to this book, we have you know three of uh, Dick's colleagues. We're gonna start with Deanna Thomas, who's a professor at Creighton University, and then we'll move to Adam Martin, who is a professor at Texas Tech University, and then to Randy Holcomb, who's a professor at Florida State University. And so without any further interruptions for me, Deanna, the floor is yours. All right, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to participate and, and talk a little bit about mine and uh, Michael Thomas's experience with Dr. Wagner as a, as a teacher. Um, so this is a chapter that's co-authored with Michael Thomas. And we kind of start off the chapter talking about some some of uh, Dr. Wagner's teaching examples. And, and one that's probably most famous with his students is that of the flying horse. So if you've ever taken a class with Dr. Wagner, then you know that flying horses can be an important part of classrooms, classroom discussions with them. And that might seem odd from the perspective of most economists, but the point of the allegory is kind of to illustrate the limitations of the toolkit of ordinary economists. So you know, if you're thinking about a galloping horse, some people looking at like a snapshot of a galloping horse will see all four hoofs of the horse up in the air and conclude that the horse is flying. And that is how Dr. Wagner describes how neoclassical economics depicts markets and market equilibrium. Like the snapshot of that horse, those models are static models of market, market exchange that obscure away from the dynamic aspects of human interaction. And so then they can't account for the responsiveness um, of human agents to changing environments. Uh, the alternative and what Dr. Wagner's work offers is kind of to think of the horse as galloping, which provides a starting point for a conversation about how um, there's a dynamic interplay between individual behavior and 
um, institutional change or how the economic system is kind of propelled forward. So what we argue in our chapter is essentially that this example of the the horse in midair is not just a good teaching tool, but also uh, kind of brings out the core characteristics of Dr. Wagner's own contributions to a scholarship. And we distinguish between three particular characteristics of his work that are also that also come from specific kind of influences. And so we call them the Austrian influence, and we offer Karl Menger as a particular example, and then the Swedish influence, and we focus on Knut Vixell, and then the Italian influence, and we talk a little bit about Emil Puviani specifically. So what we focus on essentially is just the idea that Dr. Wagner's work is all about process, it's about emergence of institutions, and about how different nodes in the kind of entangled political economic system can end up having outsized influence on how the structure evolves over time. So the first aspect uh, that we highlight is the Austrian influence and specifically Menger's influence on, on Dr. Wagner's work. And as we see it, the most important aspect of Menger's work for Dr. Wagner is just uh, the kind of process orientation and the description of individual choice that allows for uh, the divergence of, of diverse out the emergence of diverse outcomes. So, you know, as you know, all contributions to the marginal revolution kind of allow for a better understanding of reconciliation of individual plants through markets. But Menger was unique in the sense that he emphasized that um, the reconciliation of idi- idiosyncratic plants would lead to discovery of new information. Dr. Wagner kind of describes it as follows. Here, I have a quote from him. So, Menger sought to develop an analytical framework where the passing of time and the development of knowledge, institutions and organizations that accompanied the passing of time occupied the analytical foreground and were not injected as exogenous shocks. Another example that Dr. Wagner kind of offers in, in, in the classroom frequently that is uh, famous also again with his students is that of the shopping street versus the Parade Street, and I think that illustrates the Mangarian aspect of his work well. So if you think about individuals on a shopping street, they have to coordinate with each other and kind of figure out um, how to best pursue their specific plans without getting in each other's way. I always think about this shopping street in Cologne in Germany, which is this narrow and really long corridor. And depending on the time of day and the day of the week that you go shopping, it gets more or less busy. And so then depending on when you're there, different rules will emerge about how people interact. Um, and, and if it's extremely busy, there will be you know rules of the road that resemble the rules of the road for cars in the sense that uh, traffic kind of goes one way, everybody's walking on the right side of the street. And in order to get over to the left, you kind of have to have you know a, an understanding of uh, what a sufficiently wide opening between two other individuals on the other side is to get across. So those are kind of emergent responses and emergent rules that the example of the shopping street kind of brings to the foreground. And the alternative is the parade street. And on the parade street, movements kind of predetermined and directed by the by the parade, by, by the band leader or the parade leader. And unless everybody follows the instructions of the band leader and kind of walks in sync, um, the parade would turn chaotic. Right. So this uh, Mangarian insight that the process of preference reconciliation um, results in in the discovery of new rules and knowledge that feeds back into the institutional structure and reshapes the process. Um, into the future pervades, I think, Dr. Wagner's teaching and also his work in entangled political economy. The second important influence that we identify is the Swedish influence through Knut Vixell. So Vixell in his Finanztheoretische Untersuchung argues that the application of a unanimity principle for public decision-making would result in what he considers economically just outcomes 
because everybody's preferences would be represented ultimately, and um, it would be possible to to get to an outcome that's essentially equivalent to the equimarginal principle and the theorizing of you know marginal theorizing about about markets. Uh, so the goal is to develop a set of institutions that move public decision making towards a mechanism of preference reconciliation that's similar to markets, and unanimity is, does that in Vixel's conception. Now, in his system, deviations from unanimity are also acceptable sometimes when that would better result in a maximization of collective benefits. But there's always a trade-off that's explicit, which is that when you move away from unanimity, there's a potential for a greater redistribution along the lines of the preferences of small groups. And Dr. Wagner is, again, clearly influenced by this. You know, as a Virginia political economist, public choice scholar, that's kind of where that all comes from through James Buchanan, and very aware of the trade-off these different rule structures impart into the outcomes that kind of emerge in the political process. Um, And then the last influence is the Italian influence, and with Puviani in particular, what we see in Dr. Wagner's work is just the idea that a fiscal illusion, so fiscal, fiscal illusion is the failure on the part of taxpayers to accurately perceive the cost of public policy, and it occurs whenever government re- revenue generation is so complex that taxpayers can't correctly assess the, the share of the ta- tax burden that accrues to them. And because um, revenue collection is separated from spending decisions, voters are kind of led to believe that any given, given level of, of uh, public expenditure costs them less than what it actually does. So that's Puviani's inside of fiscal illusion that Dr. Wagner applies directly in his work and specifically in his work with, with James Buchanan and Democracy and Deficit. What we kind of highlight as the, the generalized insight here is just that, uh, that different groups can kind of form nodes of outsized importance in the network of entangled political economy that, that Dr. Wagner describes. And we think that, that the influence of Puviani is kind of clear in, that, in, in his description of how those networks evolve over time. So we go, we go on in the paper to, after we articulate these three specific influences to kind of show how um, in different aspects of Dr. Wagner's work, these insights are reflected. And we, we talk specifically about democracy and deficit, but then also Dr. Wagner's work with Tolleson on the transitional gain strap, and then finally entangled political economy. And in all, all three examples, we try to highlight how this idea of process from Menger, the emergent institutions and institutional feedback from Vixel, and then these idea, this idea of the nodes of outsized importance from Puviani are all reflected. And we highlight these three aspects because that's what are kind of the aspects of, of Dr. Wagner's teaching and, and his work that stood out to us and that still inform the work that we do today. And that's how we frame this chapter. Thank you, Deanna. Okay, Adam? Just like Deanna, I want to thank you all for being here, especially uh, Professor Wagner. It's been great to, to be part of this project. Um, my chapter is co-authored with Vince Miozzi, who's a graduate student at Texas Tech. Uh, he'll be on the market this fall, so everyone should take a look at his CV and digitally hire him. And it's actually based on some earlier work uh, with Deanna, is where we took our, our starting point, because uh, Deanna and I years ago wrote a piece on political entrepreneurship in the con- uh, congressional committee system. Uh, so this piece is called Expressive Entrepreneurship, um, and it's trying to build out more of that that framework that Deanna and I had originally created. Uh, in sort of a meta way, because that's the way I like to approach these things, uh, which is to try and put the economists inside the model and try to use economic reasoning to explain economic scholarship itself. So we start with this this idea from David Levy and Sandra Peart, which is that economists should put themselves inside the model, that 
Uh, we should think of ourselves as part of the process um, that's generating these different sorts of social outcomes. And so Levy starts in his original work with a sort of Stiglerian sense that the, the scholar is a utility maximizer and that the scholar's attempt to maximize his own utility can be intention with what's good for the public or with what uh, a particular body wants him to answer, right, uh, with whoever his constituents are. And I don't want to caricature their view. They add in some stuff about Smithian sympathy in later work. Uh, and ways that that can help resolve the problem. But this is borderline a, a model of the scholar as a sort of rent seeker, uh, and that we should be suspicious. And given the sort of empirical applications that Levy and Peart have to the eugenics era and things like that, that, that sort of model makes a lot of sense. And we contrast that with uh, the classic view associated with Keynes, um, what Buchanan and Wagner, borrowing from Herod, call the presuppositions of Harvey Road, or what uh, Skidelsky calls even more baldly the economist as savior, in his biography of Keynes, uh, that the economist swoops in instead of being a rent seeker and sort of fixes the problems that are wrong with society. And what we want to do is sort of carve out a middle ground, perhaps a more optimistic picture between these two that isn't as grandiose as the Keynesian vision and isn't quite as suspicious as the, the sort of Stiglerian view. And I think both of those views confront a puzzle that we identify, which is that the vast majority of research is read by very few people. 30% 30% of social science articles have no citations at all five years after their publication, and 30% of those of articles that are published account for over 80% of the citations. Uh, so the rewards uh, for publishing are distributed extremely unevenly. So one obvious answer that can explain why people publish so much stuff that no one's reading is just tenure and promotion. But we think even that belies the volume, especially of particularly dedicated scholars like a James Buchanan or a Richard Wagner. Like, how far along do you get in the 20 volumes of collected works before the marginal instrumental benefit of an extra article is zero? Right. Uh, At some point, you're not really getting extrinsic rewards from these things. Another possibility is that you could think of these individual articles as like lottery tickets or raffle tickets. So uh, any given article might not get read, but there's the small probability that this one is going to be a big hit. So think of it like buying a raffle ticket to a a house on Harvey Road. This is going to be the one uh, that has a big influence. And again, we don't think that explains a great deal of what's going on here. So this is when we bring in the, the ideas from Deanna and I's older paper, which I'll try to to speed through as quickly as possible, just because it's a it's a different paper, <laughs> that there's various levels of political institutions out there. And in particular, one of the ones we identified that we didn't develop at the time was what we called the pre-constitutional level, which is a set of informal norms, mental models, language games, etc., uh, within which constitutional rules are interpreted. So you've got your formal constitutional structure, but that exists within a sort of social cultural framework that's going to determine how the actual formal uh, political rules work. Uh, so an example we use in the early paper is that the progressive era, whether or not there was a single amendment passed to the U.S. Constitution, the progressive era would have counted as a sort of constitutional shift just because it would have changed the way that people understood the relationship between society and the state. Uh, So phrases like the general welfare in the Constitution take on a very different meaning if you've got a more classical liberal sense of what the Constitution means versus a more progressive sense of what the Constitution means. So these sort of cultural and ethical ideas are this, this filter through which Political, formal political institutions actually operate. And in that original paper, we identified the motivation of what we call pre-constitutional entrepreneurs, people that try to change 
those most underlying rules of the political game as expressive and we as opposed to instrumental. So we're using expressive in the same way that Brennan and Lemaski use the, the idea of expressive voting in their democracy and decisions. And we contrast that with instrumental. So we're saying that the, uh, the motivation is intrinsic or what Brennan and Lemaski call input causal rather than output causal. That the goal is to express uh, something about yourself, something that you believe in. Um, and in this particular paper uh, that we're drawing on the NNI's framework, we don't mean to limit this to say that Buchanan and Wagner should be understood as political entrepreneurs. We think that's part of the story, but academic entrepreneurs more generally. So expressive entrepreneurship won't be limited to the political sphere. It will also exist in these other social domains as well. I think the, the best statement of this comes from Wagner himself. Something he used to say in class is that writing is articulating your way through your uneasiness, right? So there's a, it's a goal directed behavior in the broadest sense, but the goal isn't to, he, note he doesn't say to convince everyone else that you're right, right? The goal is to settle something that's uneasy within yourself because there's a way that a topic is being discussed out there in the literature or out there in the world and it conflicts with some sort of commitments that you have. So by expressive, we don't mean what's in sort of modern language people call performative. We don't mean that it's insincere in any sense, quite the opposite. In fact, the things that people want to express most are their most sincerely held commitments. And uh, for us, in terms of identifying how expressive entrepreneurship, which is the attempt to generate novel ideas, uh, novel expressions of commitments to these these underlying principles, they take two main forms we call analytical principles and normative principles. Now, you could have other sorts of scholarship that might be like, uh, I've got uh, I've got a commitment to, say, empirical principles for doing good empirical work. Since we're not talking about scholars that run a lot of regressions, uh, we focus our, our work, our, uh, our view on those analytical and normative principles. And uh, these are primarily academic, but to some extent, they are political in the sense of trying to inform uh, the broader political ethos of a society. So then the rest of the paper, we treat first Buchanan and then Wagner themselves as these expressive entrepreneurs and try to walk through their ideas and show how they conform to this this pattern of expressively generating creative arguments for a set of underlying health principles. And to add an extra level of meta to it, we draw primarily on Wagner's biography of Buchanan in order to analyze Buchanan's own work. So Wagner has this great line. He's referring to Buchanan's 1949 piece, uh, The Pure Theory of Government Finance, where he says that this piece is the sapling from which grew nearly the entire corpus of of his subsequent work, which 64 years later had grown into a mighty oak tree that cast a large shadow over the territory of political economy. So the, the key distinction in that 49 piece from Buchanan is an individualistic approach to public finance versus an organismic approach. And that you can actually, if you take that core idea, you can actually see how that core commitment, it results in all of these other signature ideas that Buchanan develops over the over the decades. As he takes this core commitment and introduces it into new contexts and new debates, he generates all these other ideas that are quite powerful in developing his own framework. So when it comes to define what economics is and what economists should do, it makes perfect sense if you've got an, an individualistic perspective that you would want to emphasize exchange over allocation, hence his what should economists do piece in the Southerns. It makes sense that when you come to analyzing politics that you would want to emphasize exchange over truth-seeking because there is no corporate body out there whose will we are trying to figure out. 
Uh, instead, we're going to treat politics as an exchange process. And once you treat these things as exchange processes, first and foremost, you're going to want to know about the rules within which exchange takes place. That's going to give rise in the political sphere to constitutional considerations because you're going to want to analyze the rules within which the political bargains are happening. And then it also gives rise to Buchanan's heavy emphasis, um, especially later in his career, on spontaneous order as what he calls like the one idea really worth teaching to members of the public. Right. And that's a clear relatively clear expression of him trying to be a sort of pre-constitutional entrepreneur in some sense, right? We want to give people a vision in their heads of spontaneous order so that they carry that with them into the public sphere when they act. And related to this, obviously, are Buchanan's normative commitments, which is just simply based on the idea that exchange is mutually beneficial, which he interprets differently from most economists because it's based on consent, not based on utility. So he rejects the typical utilitarian interpretation of the standard economic models, right? That gives him his his classic idea that you shouldn't prefer advice to benevolent despots, which we interpret as you can't really shortcut democracy. Uh, the economists can make proposals to the body politic, but they should be addressed as citizens to fellow citizens, not as experts sort of reigning on high. I already mentioned the idea that we should be teaching spontaneous order, but I think the, the idea of Buchanan's normative commitment later in his career comes through most clearly in the soul of classical liberalism, where, and that's, that's very clear where he's trying to say we need to paint a vision in people's minds uh, that will actually inspire them to embrace liberty and limited government and those sorts of things. So that we see as a sort of role for an economist that is not, it's not just a pure self-interested rent seeker, and it's not the economist is going to save society, but rather the economist is a participant alongside other participants in this sort of democratic process and trying to influence it by winning the assent and the minds of his, his fellow citizens. So when talking about Wagner himself as, a, as an expressive entrepreneur, Deanna already hit on the key ideas. The main thing I want to add is that this is, again, something I learned from Deanna. Going back to Wagner's very first publication, which is a review of Mansur Olson's Logic of Collective Action, Wagner takes Olson to task. He says, most of this is basically right, as far as I, I'm, if I'm reading the argument correctly. Uh, most of this is basically right, but he's missing the forest. He's missing the forest for the trees because he's ignoring the political entrepreneurs that give rise to these different coalitions and interest groups and so on and so forth. So that emphasis on dynamic change and entrepreneurship is there right from the beginning in his work. And the way that we, we try and cash that out is going through some of his, his recent books and talking about these distinctions he makes between a Mingarian versus a Walrasian window on the social world, or entangled versus additive political economy, or conjunctive and disjunctive uh, visions of public finance. These are all ways of trying to articulate this fundamental difference of visions, right? Uh, so you've got this continual generation of creative new ways of talking about his own view of how social theory should actually work that is driven by this commitment to these, these this underlying set of principles. And on the normative side, that's also where I think Wagner is very interestingly different from Buchanan in that there's still a focus on entrepreneurship. So the rules are constantly in flux. So Buchan Buchanan's contribution of having a sort of two-stage select the rules, then play the game. It's brilliant. But what Wagner does is complicate that even further by pointing out that it's through the process of living in the rules that we are continually adjusting the rules themselves. So that lands him in a firmly what he ends up drawing on uh, an inside out perspective on social theory as opposed to an outside in. So I think there's as much Vincent Ostrom in Wagner's normative work as there is James Buchanan. So there's no clean two stage process. And because entrepreneurship plays such a central role, the idea of a sort of moral imagination comes out. 
that what so, the sorts of relations that we have with other human beings will depend on as much as our on our ability to imagine new ways and better ways of living together as it will with just aligning incentives through constitutional design. So that's that's the sort of core of the paper. Uh, and I think the, the takeaway for us is that if you've got this set of core commitments, plus the wide ranging intellectual curiosity of a Buchanan or a Wagner, plus their work ethic, that's probably the hardest part for a lot of people. You're going to have potentially decades of sustained creative output. Uh, where you generate lots of novelty from a set of core ideas. Thank you, Adam. Randy, we move on to you. Okay. Thank you very much, Pete. Uh, I'm delighted to be a part of this panel. And uh, uh, I'll just remark, Dick and I go back a long way. He was on my doctoral dissertation committee. Uh, I won't say how many years ago. <laughs> and uh, for a while, we were colleagues together at Auburn University. And uh, you know, whether we were in the same location or not, I've learned a lot from Dick over the years. Uh, and the chapter that I contributed to the book uh, relates to his ideas of entangled political economy. And I've tried to relate his ideas of entangled political economy with, with some things that I've been working on at the same time. So thinking a little bit about those ideas, let me go back and, and start with, uh, with the idea that uh, Dick comes across with pretty clearly in particular when he's talking about macroeconomics, but just economics in general, about the problems of aggregation in economics, that aggregates don't act, it's individuals who act. Uh, so we get a pretty incomplete picture uh, of what's going on in the public sector if we say, well, government does something, because government isn't doing anything, it's, it's individuals within government who are acting. And so a lot of times we, we uh, compare decentralized models of markets with hierarchical models of government decision-making. But those hierarchical models of government decision-making overstate, uh, overstate the case of the hierarchical nature of what's going on there, that actually there's uh, people within government are interacting with each other. They interact with people in the private sector. So it's not really a top-down type of decision-making process, even though formally it's uh, organized that way, but rather people within the system are interacting with each other in a whole bunch of different ways. In this idea of entangled political economy, regulators are telling people in the private sector what to do, but at the same time, those who are regulating, regulated, they're they're giving input to the regulators and the regulators are influenced by people who are regulated. And that's the idea of regulatory capture that's pretty well known. And I think Dick's vision of entangled political economy builds a lot of that in. Everybody, uh, there are so many people who are interacting with each other. And so the hierarchical view of government decision-making is potentially misleading. Now, when I'm thinking about this and uh, the, the chapter that I contributed to this volume, Everybody doesn't interact with everybody else. And the big issue that I'm bringing in I, I, that I hope adds something to Dick's framework is that transaction costs prevent some people from interacting with others. So we see this entangled nature of political economy where there's uh, negotiations going on, uh, lots of people interacting with lots of other people. But uh, as I say, everybody doesn't interact with everybody else. Because transaction costs often prevent those interactions uh, from occurring. One little phrase that Dick uses that I really like a lot, and I, and I think it adds a lot of insight, is he talks about the triadic nature of government transactions. So we have 
market transactions typically are bilateral transactions. Buyers and sellers negotiate with each other and they do so for their mutual benefit. Dick talks about the triadic nature of government transactions, that there are two parties that interact with each other. And, and often there's a third party that bears the cost of the interaction of the, uh, of the first two parties. And let me just throw out an example to think about that. And that's the ethanol mandate that you're required to have ethanol in your motor fuel. So every time you go to the gas pump, uh, you're buying gasoline, which is what you want. And you're also buying ethanol, which is probably not what you want, but it's required that it's included in motor fuels. And my conjecture that you don't want it is there's a regulation that forces you to buy it, uh, right? If people would voluntarily buy the ethanol, you would need to have a regulation to force them. Uh, and so what's the origin of that uh, that ethanol mandate? And a lot of it, we can go back and look at the negotiations between legislators and the corn lobby. Corn farmers, corn processors, especially corn processors, Archer Daniels Midland is a pretty big player here. And so you have lobbyists negotiating with legislators, and uh, you end up getting this ethanol mandate. So the lobbyists, the legislators, those are the two parties who are negotiating with each other. But then going back to Dick's idea, this triadic nature of government transactions, the people who are buying gasoline, those are the people who bear the cost. And the, the people who are buying the gasoline, that third party who's bearing the cost, they're not really so entangled the way Dick is presenting it with the political economy. Transaction costs prevent them from engaging with each other. So you have the lobbyists, you have the legislators negotiating with each other, and then you have a third party, the buyers of motor fuels. And they're bearing the cost, but they're not really engaged in the transaction. I mean, they're not entangled in the sense of they're negotiating with anybody. They're just forced to, to bear the cost. And this idea goes back to uh, an idea of, of Pareto, where Pareto talks about logical versus non-logical actions. And here I give uh, Dick full credit for turning me on to the idea because the, the notion that I should be looking at, at Pareto, and this is in his book, The Mind and Society, that's an idea that I got from Dick. I thought, okay, you know, maybe I ought to take a look. But Pareto, he talks about logical versus non-logical actions. Logical actions are actions where you take an action and it affects the consequences. Non-logical actions, you take an action, uh, but it has no instrumental effect on any outcome. So for example, you go to a restaurant and you're thinking, should I order the salad or should I order the pizza? And you order the salad, you get the salad. Okay. So that's a logical action. You take an action and it uh, affects the consequences. On the other hand, you go into the voting booth and you're trying to think, should I vote for candidate A or should I vote for candidate B? And you take an action, uh, you vote for candidate A, but your action has no effect whatsoever on the, on the outcome. That, and that's what Pareto would refer to as a, uh, as a non-logical action. So, you know, for example, in the last presidential election, if you had voted for President Biden, who would be president today? Eh, Biden. And if you had voted for Donald Trump, who would be president today? Biden. And if you hadn't voted at all, then who would be president? Biden. Okay, so that's a good example of thinking about uh, non-logical choices versus logical choices in the Pareto framework. And I'll also I'll mention the Brennan and Lebowski book, Democracy and Decision, where they bring these ideas up, up again. 
and talk about instrumental versus expressive uh, actions and voting in that sense. It's an expressive, uh, an expressive action. But okay, so taking those ideas and relating them back to Dick's work on entangled political economy for non-logical choices, there's no reason to be entangled because anything that you do isn't going to have an effect on an outcome. And so, you know, thinking about another concept in public choice, that's why people are rationally ignorant. That concept of Anthony Downs, rational ignorance, people don't have an incentive to be informed. Uh, and why is it that they don't have an incentive to be informed? It's because any choices they make are, in Pareto's framework, non-logical choices. If the decisions you make, the choices you make, have no effect on anything, then you don't have an incentive to be informed, so you're rationally ignorant. So this idea of rational ignorance goes right back and plays into the idea of non-logical choices, to use Pareto's terminology, uh, expressive choices, to use the terminology of Brennan and Lomaski. So if you're faced with non-logical choices, you're in a situation where whatever you do is going to have no effect on an outcome. There's no reason for you to become entangled. Uh, and indeed, there's uh, typically no opportunity for you to become entangled either. And, and go back and think about the ethanol mandate. So you might not like the fact that you you are forced to have ethanol in your gasoline when you buy gasoline. But what are you going to do about it? I mean, there's really no opportunity for you to get involved to do anything about it in the first place. So my contribution to the volume, what I tried to do was to integrate this notion of transaction costs and about non-logical choices into entangled political economy. And so there are some individuals, some groups who are more entangled than others. Uh, you have lobbyists, you have agency heads, you have corporate leaders. These are people uh, who face low transaction costs. So they're able to bargain with each other. They can negotiate with each other to produce public policy. Most people face high transaction costs. They have no influence. These are the people who are rationally ignorant. Uh, the reason they're rationally ignorant is they don't really have an opportunity to engage in public policy uh, negotiations. That's the third party that Dick is talking about when he refers to the triadic nature of government transactions. So you have two groups, two individuals who are engaged in transactions, they're entangled. Uh, and then you have the third party and the costs are imposed on them. They have no real incentive to get involved. They have no real opportunity to get involved. And so they are not really a part of that entangled political economy. They have to take the public policies that come to them, and there is not too much that they can do to affect outcomes. Uh, so one result of this is that you know political economy maybe is not as entangled uh, and maybe is a little more decentralized than at first it appears. I mean, policies appear to be made from the top down. They're really the result of negotiations, bargaining by those below, people within government agencies, lobbyists, those who are regulated have inputs into what the regulation is going to be. They're subject to some constraints that are placed on them from above, but it's really the entangled nature of political economy that determines public policy. Uh, but I don't think it's chaotic any more than decentralized market markets for goods and services are chaotic. I mean, in a sense, uh, you have a political marketplace where where public policy is made. Those are the people people who are 
entangled. And the reason they're entangled is they face low transaction costs so they can bargain with each other. So you, you have a decentralized political marketplace. Outcomes often are unplanned, often they're unintended consequences of the decisions that are made at the top. But if you take into account that some people face high transaction costs, so they're not able to engage in the political bargaining, there's a subset of that political, uh, of the political issue space uh, that's entangled. Those are the people with low transaction costs who can bargain with each other. And I think that's that's where I really see the application of Dick's idea of entangled political economy. Uh, and then there's also a group of people, because they face high transaction costs, they have no incentive to engage in bargaining, and often they have no opportunity to engage in bargaining. So I think of people like myself, uh, most other people, I mean, for a long time in social science, there's been this distinction between the elites and the masses. And the, the masses, often there's nothing they can do to engage in political negotiations. There's no good way for the, them to become entangled. The entangled people are the people who face low transaction costs, the people, the political and economic elite. Those are people who can bargain with each other. They're the people who make public policy. And a lot of times the results are unplanned and unintended just the same way that results in the marketplace for goods and services can be unplanned and unintended. So I will close my comments with that and turn it back over to you, Pete. Thank you very much, Randy. Dick, would you like to uh, have the, the floor to make some comments? Certainly, I'd be pleased to. First of all, I'm very grateful to you, Pete and Chris, for organizing this volume. I got out of graduate school in 1966. Uh, and kind of when I look through that and look through the list of publications, I, I'm so, damn, there's uh, been a lot of time spent uh, thinking, fussing, reading, and uh, that's one of the things that longevity, I guess, can do for you is give you big list of things. Uh, had I died 40 years ago, it wouldn't have looked that way. And uh, But as far as comments, I'm going to divide my remarks into four. One is some general remarks that pertain to all three of you, or four of you, if I include Pete, and then some particular remarks to each of you. I'm not sure where to start, but when you're not sure where to start, you got to start somewhere and let it take you from there. And so I, one of my favorite books of the current century is a book by Mary Morgan titled Economist and the Model or something like that. She's at the London School of Economics, and she has this beautiful book presenting the history of economics in terms of different models that economists have used. And I think from that, you get a clear image that that's all economists can do is construct models of what they find of interest and develop and elaborate those models. And some of those uh, formulations will be picked up on by other people and some will be dropped. But, um, there is no option to us. We can observe reality. All we can observe is what we have put into a model. 
And uh, that's what tells us what's important and not. But also, if you think of it in that way, what you also realize is that models are not just devices that help us think. They're also devices that prevent us from thinking, that uh, it goes both ways. And if you think in terms of the world as competitive equilibrium, you're not going to think of the world as in a process of continual moving backwards or forwards or of uh, the creation of continual novelty in society, sometimes improving things, sometimes making matters worse. And then you bring in Joseph Schumpeter in that very early on in his history of economic analysis and talked about the theoretical effort always starts with some pre-analytical cognitive vision. And what is a pre-analytical cognitive vision? It's fundamentally a feeling in your gut that something isn't right. It's an intuition. It's a sense that all these other thinkers are screwed up in some fashion. They're going down the wrong path. But it then becomes your job to try to articulate a different path and sometimes along the road, you get support. Sometimes you get opposition. But uh, remember all the while that no one can possibly see the whole of humanity and what's going on. All we can do is see our various models that uh, we think help us to illuminate what we think is happening. And which leads then in my own particular interest, Adam asked, why do we all write when no one to speak of reads what we write, uh, with very few exceptions? And I think we have questions that in intrigue us. Uh, no set of questions intrigues the same person. Different people are intrigued differently and find different things. Uh, I have a lot of good friends who have no interest in what I'm thinking about, except in bottom-level topic that drives my interest the most, it's a feeling that societies are always evanescent. They're going down. They're going up. I personally have a feeling that things are going in a bad direction in this country and have been not just this country, but uh, in many places. Uh, I also have a feeling very much that... Um, um, that uh, contestation, quarrels, human nature is not capable of living together peacefully 100%. It's that we are part of the higher mammals, the highest in the feeding order of the mammals. All of the mammals quarrel, fight, sometimes savagely. And such a thing as fighting is a social activity. Any social activity is an activity that involves two or more people. Robinson Crusoe cannot fight with himself, but he can trade with Crusoe or with Friday, but he could also fight with them, enslave them. There's all kinds of historical examples of the vileness and the nastiness of humanity as well. And I think my own sort of analytical commitments, are these things are all capable of being 
thought about, which is different from being able to eliminate the things you don't like. That's, you know, thinking about something is much easier than it is if there are things you identify, like the quarrelsomeness of humanity, or as it gets out of certain bounds. And so, you know, in terms of my own pre-analytical cognitive commitments, it is that humanity was born in conflict, and homogeneous groups are no answer to that conflict. Look at Cain and Abel, and from that day on, or if you look at the Bible in general, it's full of quarrels and fights and so forth. And so when then I come and say, uh, to start off with, take the three of you in order, when I come to Diana, there's a question of, as I started off saying, that the models we use are going to channel our thought and take this question of it's present. It's probably why I've come increasingly over the years to, I would put Pareto above uh, Wixell or Menger in, in this respect for the reason that Pareto started off as an engineer, turned to economics, thought he was going to improve upon Valraw. And in the process of writing his, what, 1906 or whatever it was, uh, manual of political economy, began to wonder, damn, markets are so wonderful for organizing people. Why do people hate them so much? Why do they have such weak support? And in puzzling over that, Pareto then turned to his sociological work culminating in his theory of sociology, mind and society, and developing his formulation of logical and non-logical action. And in conjunction with that, a sense of, of the ease with which carriers of non-logical action could gain an advantage. Similar, I think, in many respects to Jane Jacobs, um, oh, what's the title? of? She had a little book that was framed as a dialogue of, of people meeting on a Saturday afternoon and talking about stuff, and she coined the uh, distinction between what, commercial morality and uh, guardian morality, and how if you got too much guardianship taking over the commercialness, that that's you get what you call monstrous moral hybrids, and that's a, a source of degenerative kinds of activities. And my own take on what I dubbed as... Um, entangled political economy is partly out of uh, interest in following certain kinds of physics. There's a branch of quantum mechanics, but there was a woman in the physics department in Maryland who put out a book that I wrestled with. I'm not going to say that I got it all because I certainly didn't, but it was a transactional approach to entanglement in physics. And it fits my belief that all, all action in society is transactional or relational, as Michaela Novak 
put out in her paper in, in this book. So there's no such thing as one person who's able to twist his nose and things happen. Everything happens uh, through planning, through organization, through transactions. But the question is how, again, can you organize your thinking about that in a way that carries you forward to where you think you want to end up, which is how, again, to make a better world, which can only be made through some kind of bottom-up process. And that's what leads me then to the idea of systems theory, which was, of course, the main point of Abby Devereaux's uh, essay in, in this volume. And systems theory leads thought to a very different direction. The, in my judgment, the first paper on systems theory and economics uh, is one of those Italians that Diana referred to, which was Mafio Pantaleone. One of the features of my age, apparently people tell me, is sometimes names have an ability of getting away from you, and you have to. I've even been known myself when I'm looking for references, I'll have to go to something I've published and thumb through. Ah, yes, that's it. And so, Mafio Pontiglione, in the 1911 two part issue called Property, something like Properties of a Political Price System. And his model asks us to. Imagine a society organized between two bazaars. One bazaar was a market bazaar that operated according to the price theory of the time in 1911, which was basically a marginal cost pricing was a competitive equilibrium. And so you had technically governed prices. And then for the political bazaar, it operated according to a system of political pricing. What else? Now, the question became how to characterize political pricing, and Pantaleone characterized a set of political prices as created through the imposition of a flat rate of tax on all income, which then Buchanan carried forward in his demand and supply of public goods, among other papers. That was a book, of course. But so then what you have, what Pantaleone was trying to get at was that the, the, the shops in the political bazaar could not compete with the market bazaar on equal terms because the political bazaar was based on price discrimination where the the higher the income, the higher the price paid for the same thing, which we see now that our President Biden has just introduced that into the mortgage market as well now, where high income buyers of housing are going to have to subsidize low income buyers of housing as, as, as a further example of the same thing, so or similar thing. And so what you have then, if you explore then the thing about the dynamics of this, you began with the situation, then what is set in motion is a process by which high-income buyers leave the political bazaar, 
take their purchases to the market bazaar where more entrepreneurs enter that bazaar to serve those customers, the political bazaar shrinks. Now, sponsors of the political bazaar aren't going to be content with that and so are going to be able to use their political power to prevent that kind of change from happening, in which we find what we call regulation, I would submit, is almost all examples that could be explained in terms of uh, Pontiglione's framework. Uh, you even find things like many cities uh, placing restrictions on parking areas and downtown office buildings, uh, which I think has a simple explanation in terms of increasing the demand for publicly provided transit services, which some might argue is a good thing, but regardless, it illustrates the point that the properties of a social system that is entangled between, in the sense of having constituted of enterprises that operate under very different rules on the same geographical territory, that is, you have one set of enterprises constituted under principles of private law, private ordering, another set constituted under principles of public law, public ordering. Uh, those aren't consistent. That's the whole basis of the Ordo theory, the beginning with Walter Oiken and Franz Bloom, were trying to find a way of reconciling the parliamentary activity of sponsorship of enterprises with a basic liberal society. And that's where they came up with the idea of uh, mar the market conformability of public action. And uh, I remember in a class with Adam, actually, I'm, I'm sure it was you, I remember it was you, and uh, offering some well, skeptical remarks about Oiken and market conformability, and you're absolutely right about that. It's, it's an insuperable problem. And, um, and one last thing, uh, oh, and, and Randy, in this respect, I don't think entanglement is something that refers to individual people who are wealthy can be entangled, people who aren't can't be. It's not a choice. I'm, in this case, very much a believer in systems theory. And for instance, take the 2008 business. What does that illustrate? Uh, people have fought over whether that illustrates not enough regulation or too much regulation. I think it's neither. I think it's a performance feature of the highly entangled system that we've evolved into, which is further illustrated by now this latest executive order where higher income people are going to have to explicitly subsidize lower income buyers of, of mortgages. And uh, back in, you had similar kinds of arrangements where, for instance, there exists various kinds of regulatory edicts by the Federal Reserve, Federal Home Loan, various agencies that put out portfolio characteristics of lenders, that, um, that lenders have to show a distributed portfolio where 
at least so much percentage of the loans must be in various zip codes that have less than one-third the average income of that zip code and, and things like that, which means that you have regulations that are going to mean that mortgage lenders to operate have to make some loans that have negative expected values. Now, in order to get loans of the making loans of negative expected values, there's going to have to be other kinds of payoffs in the offing as well. But that, you know, I would call that a challenge is to, I think, conceptualize systems of social order organization where what where I guess I want to go or end up is a sense that uh, the the kinds of general orientation of we, we've had well put it this way we've had at least a good century or more of what I would call reasonable liberal disintegration constitutional disintegration but I don't see any point in trying to say that because no one is going to believe that without the accompanying conceptual framework that makes it, oh, this is an interesting way of thinking about, oh, my God, we are screwing this up. Because because if people have to have their feet held to the fire in order to perform well, or something like that, and uh, which gets to the uh, my final uh, point is that also I'm, I, I, I think these kinds of questions can't be reduced just to explicit rules, articulated rules, because the moral sympathies, frameworks, outlooks are also important. Uh, I can, I am confident if you could find a poll on it, that back when I was a teenager, say, you would find a very, very small share of the population saying it was a good thing for people to receive uh, public support. Uh, now you don't find that. There's very little reluctance to take handouts. Why be stupid about things? Uh, and in fact, say early England, early 20th century England, they could have serious discussions about whether people who are receiving public support should be denied the vote. That would be a non-starter now. That, show, that, that shows a... I think a moral kind of change. Where that comes from, I don't know, but I think it's it's an important matter anyway. And with that, I thank all of you for your thoughtful work and Pete and Chris for putting all this together. I've read your all of the essays and find them interesting and fascinating in the various directions that they go. And it makes me want to keep going forward. And I, I'm 82 today, as it turns out. And uh, I have for a long time harbored the image that I'm going to publish a book when I'm 100. There's a man I met when I was at Tulane. His name was Jacques Barzun. Uh, he was at Columbia. And he was a uh, friend of a, a guy who was the economics chairman back then, Hermann Freudenberger, who did his graduate work at Columbia. And he was down, and I got actually to meet him at a reception. So I, I shook his hand. I can't say I can't say I knew him, but I I saw him and I shook his hand. And he died at 102, I think it was. 
But his last book was, oh, it's a big, thick book. And it was something about the disintegration of Western society or something. And I thought, I was mistaken, but I thought he published it when he was 100 and died a couple years later. So that would be a happy way to go. But actually, he was 93 when the book came out, and he, he, he carried on another nine years. But anyway, I, I thank all of you, and uh, I thank our uh, interest here, and I'm, I'm grateful to Pete for carrying on with the Hayek program, with the job he's continuing to do. And uh, I am a firm believer that the world needs all of us, but I'm also a firm believer that... And here's where I think uh, Pete and I maybe differ a wee bit, not a lot, as I've told him this sometimes in the past, that I think Pete, I think, inclines a little bit more to wanting to be a preacher, or I incline more to thinking that it's, it's the scientific, it's the ability of a scientific explanation to convince that's going to carry the day when probably it's all necessary. That would be the Peridian answer. That's why he says he he turned to sociology partly out of scientific interest, um, but belief ultimately still lies in convincing people that you're going somewhere you don't want to go. And I firmly believe, and actually the polls show it, we ask polls, somewhere around 80% of Americans think we're heading in the wrong direction. But I'll stop there. But thank you all. All right, Dick. Thank you very much. When Chris and I uh, sat down to uh, write the introduction to this Festschrift, you know, we, we were dealing with a scholar that practiced his craft for over six decades or in six decades, over 50 years. And, you know, as you see in the bibliography in the back of the book, a uh, tremendous uh, a volume of research and books and articles and everything like that. And we wanted to summarize what we got out of Professor Wagner in our interactions with him. And we stressed these three themes, generosity, wisdom, and his example. And I think what you just heard is a fantastic uh, stress on this last part, because we argue in the introduction that Dick was a happy, lifelong learner a happy lifelong learner. And what could be a better way to be a happy lifelong learner than to strive to write your last book when you're 100? Uh, so I think that's a very, very fantastic you know, note to, to end on uh, and that we can all aspire uh, to have such, such hopes. And so, Dick, on that behalf of everyone here at the Hayek program and, and, and involved with your former students and colleagues, we really do wish you the best in this next chapter and greatly appreciate everything that you've done uh, for the science, but also personally for all of us individually. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.